0: Welcome to Box Talk, a podcast for affiliates and coaches, powered by Box Pro Magazine. Well, welcome to another episode of Box Talk. I am here with Drew. Drew, can you go ahead and introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Um, Thanks for having me, Heather. Uh, My name is Drew Amoroso, and I'm an attorney in San Francisco, California. I'm the owner and founder of a firm called Move Legal, um, where I practice what I like to call fitness law, um, which basically means that I represent fitness, health and wellness, and supplement and paleo food companies that are in the fitness space. So basically, acting like they're outside general counsel and helping them to um, grow their brand and protect their business.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like a very like niche law kind of thing that you're in.
1: Yeah, um, so I was at a, a big firm for a lot of years um, and was doing, uh, doing legal work that wasn't really getting me out of bed in the morning. Uh, it was a, a fantastic law firm to work for, but um, the work itself was um, not really um, all that, that satisfying. Um, so I started to, to practice fitness law while I was there. Um, and then just left and started my own firm, um, actually about eleven weeks ago. Um, so I'm pretty, I'm still pretty fresh <laughs> as a <laughs> as a business owner. Um, but but yeah, so fitness law is interesting because firms will have um, sports law practices, and they'll also have entertainment and media um, law practices. Which there is some crossover with those practices in the fitness world, but the fitness industry, as you know, is its own, um, discrete industry with issues and relationships, um, um, and, and challenges that fitness business owners face. And so I just had found that there was really no one who was practicing fitness law and, and trying to help companies who are in this niche. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a small, um, it's a small niche and I feel like I'm one of, if not the first people, uh, Uh, Who are who's in this space um, and talking about those issues? So it's pretty exciting.
0: Yeah. So what interests you about fitness law? Like, what is it that's like? Hey, I want to you know work on this niche of law, and this is what I want to do, and open up your own firm, and do all that. Like, what interests you so much that it drew you in?
1: Yeah. So um, I really do like uh, being an attorney, and and there were you know there's things about it about practicing law that I really like, Um, but I've been a fitness. Uh, enthusiast for my entire life. I um, played basketball in, in college, and that was my main sport um, until, uh, well, through law school, um, and then I started to do CrossFit, um, and uh, that has been, you know, something I've been doing for about six years now. And I happen to be a member at San Francisco CrossFit, um, which is, as you know, one of the um, one of the. The better known uh, CrossFit gyms in the country, and uh, um, it's owned by uh, Kelly and Juliet StarrEd and, and Kelly is, of course, um, the um, Kelly and Juliet are the the founders and owners of Mobility Wad um, and they're two fantastic, um, awesome people. Um, and so, just because of the fact that I was at that gym over the years, I got to meet some really amazing young fitness companies that were and fitness innovators who were coming through there and working with Kelly and Juliet um and just training there so I was surrounded by these phenomenal uh, emerging companies and one day like the light bulb went on and I was like I should um I should work with them because I love their products I love their their brands I um you know, I, I understand who their market is and what they're trying to do because I'm one of their customers. Um, and so the idea of helping them to grow and protect their business was um, just really exciting to me. And so I, I, you know, one by one just started to represent a number of companies in the space and um, and then was able to kind of build a practice around it. So my interest in fitness and being able to combine that with my um, day-to-day work is initially what, what really drew me to the Um, to that having that kind
0: of a practice. Okay yeah that makes sense and so I mean you've been dealing with with this type of niche law for a while now and I know that we kind of talked about that you you have some ideas of what some of the top issues are that you've come across you know in dealing with fitness law and box owners and let's go ahead and dive into some of those and and look at some of the top issues that you've seen in um, this area that you think affiliates could really learn from. So let's go ahead, um, maybe give me kind of a rundown of what they are, and then we'll dive into each.
1: Sure. So just generally up front, I would say that there are, there's not that many laws that were specifically written to govern the fitness industry itself. Um, So there's not many lawmakers who are, you know, uh, sitting in the state capitol, you know, writing laws that are specific to the industry. There are some. Um, for example, California has one um, that governs the terms of membership agreements. So anytime a, a fitness club owner enters into an, a, a membership agreement with their, um, with their member, there are, there are certain rules about the duration of those agreements and other things Um, there's automated external defibrillator laws, AED laws, um, which most fitness facilities should, um, um, should have those depending on which, on which state you're in. So there's laws that are specific to that. Um, and then there's also, um, a a pretty robust body of law around, um, waivers and participant agreements, which I think we'll, we'll cover in a second. Um, so my, my practice deals with a, a wide variety of, of laws, um, uh, that are specific to the industry, but there's also other general principles of business law that apply to, f- to fitness companies. So it's really fitness law is really like the application of those legal ideas to the fitness industry. Um, so in addition to, um, those, the laws that I, that I just mentioned, um, I think, you know, Well, waiver and participant agreements are obviously a really big one, um, and I'm I'm sure most box owners are familiar with what those are. Um, I think uh, getting a solid corporate structure in place is another really big one, and I know we're going to talk about some of these in a little more detail. Mm -hmm. Um, But also formalizing commercial agreements and agreements between founders, so that's another another big one and understanding you know why having those agreements in writing is important and also the importance of having some of the issues um, between co-founders of a box or a fitness another fitness facility um, having those issues laid out and agreed to at the outset of the relationship are are um, really important so those that's kind of an, an overview of some of the, some of the key ones
0: yeah no, and the reason I asked you for the overview is I just I kind of want affiliates to get a bit of a taste of what you deal with and the broad range that is uh, fitness law and all the all the issues that you talk about discuss because boy, I feel like they cover a lot of different things, so it's just. It's just crazy. So why don't we dive into and start talking about maybe um, effective waivers and participant agreements? Because I'm sure you visit our boxes. I know I have. And every time I go, there's a waiver I have to sign. And so why don't we kind of dive in there and talk a little bit like why we need those and maybe some of the issues you've seen with those and what it takes to write an effective waiver and participant agreement.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So just um for those who aren't aware of the, the specific definition um, a waiver is is basically a, a legal document in which someone voluntarily waives a right to something right so you are you are as the person who signed the agreement you have a a right a legal right but by signing the waiver you're giving up that right so in the context of a box when um, when uh, a member fills out a waiver, they're essentially waiving their right to sue the box owner for injuries that um, arise as a result of participating in class or in a certain activity um, or from the negligent acts of the coach or the owner. Um, So generally, a waiver doesn't cover intentional acts. So if a coach or someone who's acting on behalf of the box does something intentionally that that hurts someone, um, they intended to do it, that's generally not covered by a waiver. But negligent acts of coaches or, or owners are um, um, can be covered generally under a waiver depending on exactly what it says. Um, and I would, I would also just kind of say up front, just a quick disclaimer that none of this is really legal advice, <laughs> and I would be, I would be a good attorney unless I, I, had like a disclaimer in here. Um, but and I would really encourage all box owners and, and any small business owner to to find a great small business attorney to to help them. Um, but I love to talk through some of these issues on a broader level because I think this is stuff that that box owners should really be aware of, you know, as they're going through their, um, as they're operating their business on on a day-to-day basis, uh, it's really good to have a general understanding of what um, some of these concepts are. And, um, you know, my view is that you should always have an attorney involved in this kind of stuff. Um, But that being said, I think it's, it's really, it's really great to be informed about um, the issues. Um, But so back to waivers for just a second. Uh, A lot of, traditional waivers will also have an assumption of risk provision, um, and the purpose of that is to clarify that your members understand that the activities that they're engaging in are dangerous and could lead to serious injury or death, but nonetheless, um, by signing, you know, by agreeing to assume the risk, um, you know, they're they're essentially uh, saying that even though I, I know that this is risky, I'm going to go ahead and and do this activity anyway. Um, so that document, you know, advises them of the risk, but it, it gets the participant to agree that they are voluntarily assuming it, which is really important, right, because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you want your members to understand before they walk in the door exactly what it is that, um, that they're getting into and that um, there's a lot of new members who might not know that, hey, this is, some of this stuff is really dangerous and could cause um, some serious injury. Um, so you want them to know that but you also want them to agree that they're going to assume that risk and um, you know that's a requirement as part of participating in, in your class. Um, so I mean the main reason that a box owner would want to have one of these is to of course limit the liability a box faces when someone um, gets injured, right? So everyone just needs to be clear up front. What the rights and responsibilities of of both sides are before you you actually before the member actually starts to um, to go to class or to exercise.
0: Yeah, and so have you ever seen any? I'm just curious, any waivers or participant agreements? That you're like, wow, this does not, you know, this actually does not cover something. Like, is is there specific wording you need, or like to ensure that it's actually saying what it needs to say? Like, have you ever seen anything? You're like, this is not okay. This is not right.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of those. Um, And I think what it is, is um, oftentimes you'll have people who will go onto the, onto the internet and try to cobble together what they think um, is a, is a good waiver. Um, Or they'll take a waiver from, from somewhere else and try to apply it to their specific industry. Um, And those things don't always line up. And, you know, As we know, not everything you read on the internet is true. <laughs> uh, really?
0: So, oh, I thought it was. I know. Oh, okay. Shocking.
1: <laughs> I know all of your, your listeners are. Um, I just dropped a big knowledge bomb on them. Sorry,
0: but, guys. Uh, hate to break yeah. it to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, but yes, uh, not everything that you find on the internet is true. So I think you'll have people who are kind of cobbling something together, and it's not really um, – it's not really effective or it doesn't comply with some of the specific laws that, that uh, your, your state may have in place. So waivers of this kind are generally governed by state law, which, which is why it's important to have um, a waiver that complies with, with those laws. Um, so I mean, I think in terms of what a good waiver looks like, there's definitely some, some keys. Um, that you see across every good waiver, and I actually, as you know, Heather did a post on this um, for Box Pro a couple of months ago, <clears throat> um, and and laid out some of these requirements. Um, but I, I think there are some keys, uh, you know, across uh, across the board that people should be should be thinking about, and that I see a lot of times, you know, in a, in a bad waiver, these aren't really there. Um, you know one one example would be that you really have to have clear and unambiguous terms right so you kind of want to have these written as if you were explaining them to you know a junior high student Um, they shouldn't be complicated uh, in terms of the language that's used like they should be very straightforward and very clear um, for the reader to understand if it's if it's a lot of legal language or it's confusing, then it could be interpreted later that the person didn't really understand what they were um, entering into. So that's one thing right off the bat in terms of clarity that's important. Um, of course, waivers, just as a matter of practice, they should be uh, executed before any activity takes place. Like, the first thing that should happen when someone new walks in the door, you have a, a drop-in from another box, um, you know, or, or someone is signing up for a class for the first time, Say hi, nice, nice to see you. Here's a waiver, maybe a little bit more delicate than that, but like it should be one of the things that happens up front, um, pr- pretty, you know, pretty soon before they start to do any sort of activity. Um, I think they should they should have some of the stuff we talked about for like before, like the assumption of risk provision. Um, of course, they, they have to be signed. The fact that you know you you um, gave it to them doesn't really mean anything you have to get an acknowledgement that they understand what they're the the rights that they're releasing um and then another thing too is it kind of has to be a standalone document so you can't have it buried within you know the language around waiving your rights buried within you know 10 pages of a of a, a new client agreement um it has to be really clear that it's a standalone document and that you know you're um you're not trying to bury it, um, or put it in really small print, you know, on the eighth page of 10 pages, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and one other thing I would mention too, um, it's an issue that comes up is just, it's good to have a, a good business practice of keeping and storing them in a safe place. Um, you know, having, having them electronically saved or locked up somewhere and having training your, all of your staff on the procedure, when someone comes in the door um and signs you know you get them to sign the waiver, not only that, but then the waiver goes in this place or it gets backed up to you know it gets scanned and, and uploaded or something like that, so that you have a very clear record of it in the event that something comes up. hopefully that's never the case, but in the event that something does, then you have the the record of it so those are some of the the traits of a of a good waiver and and some of the good business practices around. Um, using them and and keeping them.
0: Well, I want to say the procedure is so important too because I've actually been to a couple of boxes where I had to ask for a waiver to sign. Yeah, <laughs> and like that's just because I'm I I just think about it because I'm like, well, they don't want to be liable for you know. So, but I right. think even having that procedure in place, like knowing what happens when a drop in walks in or a new member comes in, like having having that those checks to be like, okay, we did this, we did that, we did that, instead of just being like, oh yeah. That thanks for reminding me. Like, I shouldn't be reminding you.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're an A plus uh, <laughs> drop in. Drop in and not next time, next
0: time, I'm not going to do it. And then I'll yeah. be like, I work out and I'll be like, hey, you didn't, you didn't make me sign a waiver. You should probably listen to this podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they're just really important. And I think we're all very, you know, conditioned to signing them. So for anyone who has any sort of hesitation around it, I, I would, I would suggest getting over that pretty quickly because people, you know, we expect to have these things in front of us, um, you know, when we walk in the door, um, and it's a it's a standard business practice. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, the waiver's only as good as as you know the procedure that gets it signed and and secured. So it's no. another another thing to think about.
0: So and we talked about you know like you've come across some bad waivers. Do you have any suggestions on how affiliates can like? up with a good waiver or get a good waiver or, you know, have a good waiver on hand? Like, I don't know if you have any resources or, yeah, they should see an attorney or anything like that?
1: Yeah. So, every state has their own specific rules regarding waivers um, and, you know, some of, the, some of the concepts are transferable across state lines. Um, but it's really important to make sure that your waiver complies with your state laws. Um, there are really good books out there on, on waivers um, and other, other online resources. Um, again, the issue with, the, with finding something online is that you know, you're just not 100% sure where it came from or who, who drafted it or who's talking about them. Um, and I sort of like – I kind of use this example a lot about you know, if your car breaks down um, you can probably find a YouTube video with some guy in Poughkeepsie, New York, who's like showing you how to fix your car. <laughs> but I mean, I, I personally want to take it to a mechanic to look at my car. <laughs> I mean, maybe the guy in Poughkeepsie is, is really qualified, but I don't know that. Um, and I don't know if I'm, you know, if I try to do it by myself, like you're kind of rolling the dice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, my, my overarching advice um, is that you know, you should talk to an attorney, a small business attorney, or someone who's familiar with the industry who can guide you on that, on that issue, because that's really the absolute best way to protect yourself. And, um, you know, I know that not everyone is really enthused about, about, uh, going to deal with an attorney. Um, but really the, if you look at it as, like, an additional insurance policy, right, like, you wouldn't think twice about getting insurance for your gym, um, you know, and I, I think the idea of going to an attorney is sort of similar in the sense that, you know, you could roll the dice, but, the you know, the risk of doing that is, you know, someone could get injured and you might not have the appropriate, um, you might not have the appropriate waiver in place, and so I, I always suggest that, you know, um, to... Box owners that I meet from states outside of California, I always say, like, go talk to somebody who knows what they're they're dealing with because ultimately it could it could save you your business down um, down the line. So that's not necessarily a, a pitch for me. I just, in terms of you know, best practices for boxes who are protecting themselves and want to be protected, absolutely, I think the best way to do it is go talk to an attorney. And this is not a complicated document for them to draft for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, wow. We covered a lot on waivers. Do you think we got it all?
1: I think we covered it all. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, great. Well, then let's move on to, to point number two, issue number two. Um, and I believe it's going to be solid legal foundation in place with business partners. That sounds very interesting. So what what are we talking about when I say that? Like, what do all those words mean?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the issues that I deal with the most goes something like this. Um, there's two business partners that start off with no agreement in place, right? So they're enthusiastic about opening up a box or a fitness business. They, um, they open it up, but they don't take the time to sit down and talk about um, who is responsible for what, uh, what each person's obligations are, what happens if the company dissolves, um, who's who's going to handle certain responsibilities, is the the pay, how is the pay structure split, right? Like these are all things that inevitably come up in a business partner relationship, right? Um, and, and oftentimes the the partners, the founders, will not take the time to put a written agreement in place that um that will kind of solidify the understanding as between all the partners, um, you know, what their responsibilities are. So it's a really important thing to work out up front because even if you're, you know, BFF with your business partner, you just never know what's going to happen down the line. Um, and there's a lot of things that you may not have planned for. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, there's a disagreement between the two. I mean, that definitely happens, but there are other things that have, that are outside of your control that kind of should be outlined. Um, and so I think that's step number one in having a solid legal foundation is getting a, a corporate, having a corporate structure in place. Um, so like an LLC or, uh, a corporation and, um, which, which protects owners, um, uh, from, from facing certain types of, of, uh, having certain types of liability. Um, but as part of that corporate structure, like having a, a a partner's agreement in place that lays that, that stuff out. Um, so that's, that's probably the, one of the number one issues that I see and that I think is, you know, um, important in terms of having a solid legal foundation. Um, And I I see that all the time. I don't know if you if you ever hear of those sorts of disputes rising but
0: all the time. I can't tell you how many stories I come across. And honestly, honestly, one of the last um, podcasts I did was with an affiliate who had a falling out with a business partner. And he said it was really great that he had some of those um, solid foundations in place because it really saved him. Um, but, yeah, I can't tell how many people I've, I've talked to falling outs or, you know, somebody sells part of it or business partners fall mm-hmm. away. Like, yeah, it's everywhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, life, you know, your business life changes, your personal life changes, things happen, you have to move away, you know, your, the business isn't doing as well, um, you want to bring on another partner. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that can happen, and like a pretty well drafted agreement can uh, contemplate those, uh, some of those situations that you think, ah, oh, that'll never happen. But then you're a year or two into running your business, and voila. Um, something happens that you hadn't expected. Um, so I think that's a that's a pretty core piece of, of being a business owner is it, when you have partners, and even when you don't have partners, um, it's good to figure out those issues um, up front, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. What, do you maybe have a, a few of the top things that you actually need to outline or that you see are the most beneficial to outline an agreement like that?
1: Yeah, um, so I think... Uh, I think, as I said before, you know, you want to think about the, the, a big one that comes up. Right is like money, mm-hmm. right? So, who's going to be? How much of an interest does each partner? Let's say that there's A and B partners. How much interest does A and B each have, respectively? Mm-hmm. Um, is one going to um, take on a certain amount of debt or contribute a uh, some sort of other? property to the the company early on so let's say like you're combined like one one owner has the all the equipment and the other owner just has cash and they're gonna put those two things together to start uh, their box right well you want to understand like whether the equipment the the value of the equipment like matches the amount of the 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 cash contribution um, and if it doesn't like you know does that does that change the Ownership interests of the two of the two partners. What happens if the company like dissolves like who gets the money <laughs> um, you know yeah. um, If you want a, another one is if you want These kinds of agreements can like contemplate if you're bringing on a, a, a third person like How do we get that person um, into the company? Um, if there are disagreements right like how do you resolve disagreements about the direction of the business? Because if you've got two owners that each own 50% of the business and they disagree on an issue, then you're in gridlock. And, like, <laughs> there's no majority. <laughs> so so that's another issue to think about. Like, what if we disagree on a fundamental direction we want the company to go in like one thinks we should expand the other one doesn't like what do we do about that Hmm. um so those are those are some things that come up all the time and this is not just in the fitness context you know this is this is these are small business issues that every owner faces Um, so those are a couple that um a couple that come to mind and that are often you know the um they um they're often at the heart of of disputes that i see and and deal with
0: And so if Philly has been open for, let's say, three, four years, doesn't have a legal foundation like this in place, is it too late for them to build one?
1: No, definitely not. I mean, these things can be worked out uh, after the fact. Um, You can, uh, of course, it's it's best, the best practice would be to have it at the outset, but you can go to a, to an attorney and um, these things can be, can be worked out. Um, And it might take a little bit of unwinding and some some rejiggering to, um, you know, to to figure it out and to put some of this stuff in place, but it's definitely not too late to go and, um, and and talk to someone who can help to sort through those issues. And like I said before, I think it's a really excellent business practice to have it in, in, in place. So if you don't have one and you're, um, you know, you're you're at the point where you think it's important to, to have it memorialized in writing, I think it's a great idea to go and talk to, um, talk to an attorney about it.
0: So in summary, have a great and solid legal foundation. That's, <laughs> that's basically what I got from that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's really, really important. Um, I think these, having a solid legal foundation is just as important as, you know, having great staff, you know, having uh, a really awesome marketing plan, um, you know, having, uh, A sweet accountant on your on your side too to deal with accounting issues like it's one of the you know one of the tools in your arsenal um to help you to grow and protect yourself
0: yeah and and to do it before all the crap hits fans so that's it's probably the best way to do it before the storm comes so no for sure awesome well what do you think do you think we, we hit everything on there
1: yeah, yeah, I think that that's a good summary of of having a, a a good corporate structure and foundation in place. Definitely,
0: I think so. I learned a lot, man. I show up my own business. and I'm gonna have a great legal foundation. <laughs> yeah. in place. there we go. There you go. <laughs> Just for this, okay. So let's look at um, the uh, the next like issue that we've talked about, and that's um, understanding the difference between independent contractors and employees. So what do those words mean? You know, like can you define both of those?
1: Sure. Um, So, well, I'll say this. Each of those is a little bit hard to define because they're somewhat context-specific, and they're based on a number of factors. But the number one factor is the level of control that uh, the employer exerts over, or the company exerts over the, the worker. So the more control that a company has over a person's time, how they do the work, um, when they do the work, um, the more control that the company has, um, then the person that's working for them is more likely to be an employee. And this is again, like, this is in very general broad strokes. Um, if there's less control over the work and the person has more autonomy to complete it and to do the work on their own schedule, um, then it's, you know, generally that's what an independent contractor would would be defined as. Um, and it really, really depends on the, the type of work um, and, uh, as I said before, what you're having that specific individual do and the, industri- the industry that, that you're in. And so there are Thousands and thousands and thousands of cases, deal, like that, are like: Is this person an independent contractor? You know, are they? A-? Yeah, it's just it's one of those things where it's very context specific. Um, but the the government, like the IRS, and then also some some cases, some really important seminal cases, have kind of set out some factors that are helpful in thinking about these things. Um, so, trying to think if I can reel off some of these. So, like. Um, what, I guess whether the worker supplies their own equipment and, own, and their own materials and tools to complete a job, um, that's, that's one issue that will be looked at, right? So if I've got someone, if I'm providing a desk, a computer, a this, a that for all of, you know, for the worker and they're just showing up to do it and they're not using their own equipment, then maybe that factor suggests that they're an employee as opposed to an independent contractor, Um, if the, if the worker, um, controls the hours of their employment, like you give them a task and they're like, okay, like I'm going to go, I'm going to do this sort of when I, you know, independently, right. Like on my own time. Um, then that could be something that, you know, would suggest that that person is an independent contractor, as opposed to, you need to be here between the hours of nine and five. Um, that's more of a, you know that would be more of a, a an employment type situation um whether there's like a, a degree of of permanence is another one so if it's like if the the job's going to last for like 3 years, 4 years, 5 years or even even shorter periods of time than that then then it's you know maybe that's a little bit more indicative of an employment relationship um and if someone's like an integral part of the business is another one. Um, so if they're doing things that are like really fundamental to the business, then maybe that person is is an employee um, as opposed to someone who's independently working on a small piece of the of the business. Um, so and again, like those factors, they're just those are a couple examples, but there's many others, and it's it's um, it's very context specific. So it's hard to say one way or the other. Um, you know, yes, that person's an employee. Yes, that person's an independent contractor. It just kind of depends on the nature of the work and some of the things I just I just listed.
0: Well, then, gosh, how can an affiliate figure that out? That sounds hard.
1: No, it's it's really it's it's complicated. Um, and I'll tell you that uh, you know, attorneys, this employment law, which is what we're talking about, right? Like, um, there are you know, employment law is its own dis- discrete. Uh, field with employment experts who are dealing with these issues all the time right um, and so a really skilled employment attorney would would be the kind of person to talk to about whether you um, you know whether those that you work with are employees or independent contractors because um, they're they're really familiar with the, the nuances of the federal and the and the state rules depending on what state you 're practicing in and um, they know the the case law and are able to say, yes, like this is a, um, you know, this is definitely something that, um, would, you know, well, I wouldn't even say definitely. Um, mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, we think it could be this, but oh, you know, <laughs> who knows, like the IRS might come in and say, yeah. no, like you actually said that these were, um, independent contractors, but we're, our determination is that they're employees. Um, and so, um, so, the, and and of course, the reason why you want to, to know this and understand this and have an an, uh, an employment attorney weigh in on this for you is because if if you mistakenly label someone as an independent contractor rather than an employee, um, and you don't withhold Social Security or federal, federal un, unemployment or Medicare taxes, um, then you know you as the business owner can be responsible for a portion of those of those taxes. So that's why it's important to properly uh, categorize um, employees and independent contractors. And yes, certainly there's responsibilities, additional responsibilities that you take on when you have employees. But you know, um, if the IRS comes in and you know audits you and, and finds out that you're not paying the taxes you need to, then that's that's not good. Um, so it's it's a kind of a, a pretty important distinction to to
0: be aware of. Yeah. But man, that that does sound tough though. But I have heard stories of where it has come back to bite an affiliate in the butt when they haven't labeled their staff correctly.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, and I'm actually um I I'm always like feel like when I'm talking about the stuff and I was saying before we got on the call that I um that I, you know, uh present on these issues a lot with, mm-hmm. with business owners. And I feel like I'm like the Debbie Downer uh, <laughs> presenter.
0: <laughs> maybe a little like, bit, maybe a little like, bit.
1: Oh man. Oh man. This is, oh, God, I wish I didn't know this, but <laughs> the, the reality is I, I hope that understanding these things will help, will be a benefit for your company. Um, because yes, they're. It, it's a little bit, uh, you know, disappointing, uh, or, intimidating to think that wow like you know these are issues that could come out of my business but it's like knowledge is power you know and if you've got um, an understanding of of all these things and you're taking the right steps to protect yourself then that should be able to give you the kind of peace of mind that you want to move forward and to to grow with you know certainty right um so uh yeah i feel like a lot of this stuff is like do this, or this will happen, and, and, which, you know, (laughs) it doesn't make me the most popular guy in in the room, but, that should uh, probably
0: be your theme music, is that depressing, I know, Mm -hmm.
1: I know, I just wear gray all the time, and, (laughs) yeah, Um, but, yeah, no, I, I I think that these are really important things to to think about, and we all hear stories where, um, you know, it's, there's an unfortunate circumstance where something like that happens, Um, but, yeah, I hope that, I hope that your listeners and others will take it as, you know, um, a positive, you know, something that they should, that they can do to help protect themselves.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious, when we say employees, are we just talking about like full-time employees or part-time employees? Are they all the same thing under employees or do they differ or I'm just curious?
1: Yeah. So there's different rules for full and part-time employees. Um, and so there, there are different rules that, that apply, Um, and there's a number of, um, you know, federal laws and and state laws that would govern those relationships, um, and, and the scope of, of the differences between the two. Um, but yeah, that's another thing that, you know, someone who's experienced in those issues would be able to, to help a box owner with.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And understand those. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing for you to look at affiliate and designate what you're doing and if your people are correctly labeled. So I definitely think that is a hard-hitting issue. And then, uh, Drew, I know one of the, the last ones we had talked about was the importance of formalizing commercial agreements. And what are commercial agreements? How would you go about defining that, describing that?
1: Sure. So a commercial agreement is basically a, a contract between two business entities that Governs the scope of their business relationship, right? So as a box owner, uh, if you have equipment suppliers or you have uh, sponsors or you you are a sponsor, um, if you have independent contractors that are doing work for you, um, those sorts of of commercial – when you have commercial agreements that are in place and commercial relationships with other business entities – um, any sort of contract with them would be considered um, a commercial agreement.
0: Okay, so why are they important? Why are they essential? Why would you say an affiliate needs to look at that and um, you know take those into consideration then?
1: Sure. So I, I kind of like to tell this one story, mm-hmm. um, which is <laughs> um, there's a guy by the name of Gary Erickson, who was the founder of Cliff Bar. And he has uh, he wrote a book maybe ten or fifteen years ago called Raising the Bar, and it I know clever cool title. yeah catchy catchy title mm-hmm. and he it essentially chronicles you know uh, the formation of of his company and some of the the um, you know his rise their rise to the the stature that that um, Cliff Bar is at now um, and one, one of the chapters early on in the book is called Don't Kill the Lawyers, which I obviously appreciate for a number of reasons.
0: Yeah, that's probably your favorite chapter. Favorite mm-hmm.
1: chapter in the entire book. Um, <laughs> but in that, it's a little mini chapter and in that that chapter, he uh, talks about how early on in the business, um, he had entered into a bunch of handshake agreements with his distributors. So. It doesn't. I don't think the book explains exactly who they were, whether they were friends or just you know uh, other business owners that he came into contact with. But essentially, his entire distribution was outsourced, and so at a later point when they were actually doing well, he decided to bring the distribution in house. And when he did that, um, they, he he was sued by. The, by the distributor because they had a handshake agreement in place and it didn't really they hadn't formalized a lot of the terms of their relationship right so okay if I to if I want to terminate you know our agreement and stop working with you distributor outside distributor you know how does that work and do I have to pay you money you know can we just terminate it whenever we want um, so anyway the result of that was that um, that the he got sued and I think it was like for they settled for like two million dollars or something at a time when yeah when like cliff bar was making like two million dollars worth of bars or something like that Mm. so um his point is like you know you should really um you should have these sorts of things worked out early on because they um they can prevent you from you know Losing several million dollars. Now that's a, sort of a that's a pretty drastic example, but but the point is um, that if you have relationships where um, you know you are giving someone money to do something or vice versa, um, you know, and, and it's part of your business, it's a really great idea to out to outline each side's rights and responsibilities in the form of a, a written agreement. Um, so that kind of an agreement allows you to contemplate the what ifs, right? So what if we decide to break up? What if we, you know, what if, um, I decide that I would like more money. What if, you know, some of the, some of the material that I give to you is not to your liking, or I don't deliver it on time. Um, you know, some of those things are never talked about in your general verbal agreements. Um, and so it's a good way to memorialize the things that you probably, maybe never even thought would happen um, by, by just writing it down. Um, and so you're able to avoid a lot of ambiguity too. So if, I'm, if you and I are talking about you know, something, and this happens all the time, just in general conversation, um, I'll say a word or a phrase and you'll interpret it to mean something and I'll interpret it to mean something completely different. Um, so, you know, one, one person may not have been trying to trick or deceive the other person. It might just be a miscommunication, um, which are, which we have all the time. And so having something in writing can really limit the amount of, uh, ambiguities that there are. Um, and it's also easier to enforce and just kind of gives a peace of mind, right? So you, as a person who enters into an agreement, you, it's very clearly outlined what it is that you're. Required to do, and what happens if you know? A this is what happens if this happens. Um, those sorts of things are are really important, and um, I think are it's important anytime you're entering into a, you know some sort of a, an agreement where there could be repercussions um, if something happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to like having a legal foundation in place with your business partners. I mean, you want to think about things that could happen. I know it's not fun to think about the bad things that could happen but you need to keep those in mind so that you're prepared for them should they ever come into play.
1: Totally, and I think it's the sign of a very mature company or business who understands that this is not the sexy part of your business. You know, This is not the fun part where you get to go out and, and engage with your customer um, or try to grow your business, um, but this is a really this is a mature thing for a company to do, right? And so one of the things that comes up a lot is, you know, one side will propose a written agreement and the other side will say, well, I, you don't trust me or, you know, I'm not going to sign this. Like I have to get an attorney to look at it. And that will, you know, some people, so some people are hesitant to, um, to put an agreement in front of a partner because they're afraid of the backlash. But in my mind, if I was you know in that situation and someone on the other side didn't want to- you know formalize the terms of our agreement, I would have serious reservations about whether that's someone I want to actually do business with um i in my mind i i i would that would uh signal to me that they're not a mature business person because these things are like business one oh one things right yeah. so um so yeah, I think it's it's definitely part of having a solid foundation is is not only having the uh, these agreements but entering into them with mature people who are gonna who are going to be good business partners for you um, and and again it's for everyone's protection and it gives you the kind of peace of mind where you can lay your head on the pillow and know that you know you've got a, a certain layer of of protection um, through this through those kinds of agreements.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. It's a lot of information to process, but really good stuff that we talked about. So, and then Drew, I'm curious if you maybe have any um, resources or recommendations or, or, or last pieces of advice for those affiliates out there to help them really um, keep to fitness law and keep that you know top of mind and make sure that you know they're ready. They're ready should anything happen.
1: Sure, um, I, I think it's really important for business owners to be aware of and, and understand. The legal issues that face their business. Um, I mean, my goal in writing blog posts uh, for Box Pro and, and articles for on my own blog, and also you know on on other um, resources, is to just raise awareness among the community about the issues that they face, so that they can help to identify them and um, and then contact an attorney to to help them. Right. So these are things that, as you're sitting, you know, at the uh, Behind the control panel of your of your business, so to speak, and you're pulling the levers and pushing the buttons, you know you can identify some of the things in your everyday business that um, can raise a red flag for you, and you could say, "Oh, I should, you know, this is something I remember reading this or thinking about about this or, or seeing this somewhere. Um, I should probably talk to someone." Um, I wouldn't really advise anyone to try to navigate these issues and laws by themselves. I think finding an attorney you trust is just as important as as i said before building your client base getting a good accountant focusing on hiring the right people um so i think i think blog posts um are a good way to become educated about these issues mm-hmm. i think um there are um, there are other good good resources um on the internet to be aware of um i mean i my my blog covers a lot of these things and i like to to post um about them um and uh, so I, I mean, I would I would say check out some of the, the things that I'm writing about. Um, there's also stuff on on Box Pro as well that we've posted about that covers some of these issues. Um, but I would say, you know, aside from becoming or having an awareness of them, I would say definitely get an attorney to advise you on how best to protect yourself and you know let an expert come in and um, and help you with them. But it's it's definitely a great idea to be to have at least a base understanding of what, of what these issues are.
0: Yeah. No, and we'll, we'll make sure we have a link of Drew's blog on uh, this podcast. So you guys can check that out with this, but this podcast is also a pretty good resource, I think. So you guys should listen to this. So good job. Congratulations. Um, but, yeah, awesome. Well, Drew, thank you so much for just taking the time to break down um, some of these tough topics, some of these hard topics, and just really uh, picking them apart, giving uh, your thoughts on them, and just starting conversations that I think affiliates should have and should be thinking about. So, thank you so much. We appreciate you being on Box Talk today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Heather. I really appreciate your time.